Well, welcome back for the afternoon session. Uh, our first speaker is going to be uh, Jennifer Lund. She's the director of the Historic Sites Division of the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And with that short introduction, we're going to go ahead and have her come up and take the rest of the time. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. And you might say there, there's maybe some disconnect between uh, working f with historic sites of the church and the title of my paper, and that is because uh, there is a disconnect. What I'm talking about today happens to be my personal project, something I've worked on at night and on the weekends for the last six years. And that is a documentary edition of the letters of a uh, 19th century Mormon woman who sent her husband off on four missions uh, during the early years of their marriage. I've been working on this project with a friend named Beth Anderson, so I have to give her just due for this as well. And uh, we are in final edits, so we hope we'll be sending it off to a publisher soon. I'm going to, I hope I can do two, two, two things today. One of those is to give you a sense of what it was like to be a missionary wife in the 19th century and what we can learn from those experiences. And then the second is to talk just a little bit about stories and coming to understand people. When you're working with letters, you're really dealing with fragments. You don't get whole stories uh, in the letters very often. Every once in a while you do, but they're just kind of doled out. Uh, week by week. You get a little bit here and a little bit there, but you can pull those together into some really, uh, really fascinating stories. So, um, with, and I'm not, right after lunch, I'm not sure if I can keep you awake, but uh, I know that Saini can. So let me introduce you to uh, Saini Lund. Um, in the fall of 1883, Saini sent her husband, Antoine H. Lund, off to serve a mission. He was gone a total of 26 months, leaving her to manage the boys, the household, and all their affairs alone. Saini's aunt, her non-Mormon aunt from Illinois, on hearing this, wrote, She thought it was the awfulest thing you would leave your wife and little children go so far away, Saini reported to her husband. She said, we all must be crazy. Perhaps not crazy, but certainly devoted to um, uh, preaching the gospel um, in the 19th century. Anton's response in his diary, he says, take our religion out of the question and it would be an act I would not be guilty of. But as the lo long as the Lord wants me here, I will try to do my duty. The reality was is that the reality was that most of the missionaries in the 19th century were married men. William Hughes found that among a sampling of missionaries called between 1849 and 1900, nearly 78% were married. It was not until the late 1880s that the trend began to shift towards single elders finally reaching 50% between 1896 and 1900. Unlike Protestant missionaries, Mormon missionaries were not usually accompanied by their wives and children. The paradigm created a situation in which missionary wives were forced to assume the responsibilities that were somewhat similar to those of a widow, 
at least for a time. In an introduction to a collection of articles exploring widowhood in the American Southwest, Arlene Scadron delineates the challenges faced by widows, most of which can be applied on a temporary basis to the missionary wife, dealing with immediate grief of separation, new and usually reduced financial circumstances, responsibility for household, family, and business affairs, loss of consortium, loneliness, isolation, and the need to forge a new identity and new social networks as a woman alone. It is no surprise, then, that 20th century authors have sometimes written about Mormon missionary wives as missionary widows because of the similarities there. Saini Lund was, perhaps, was one of perhaps as many as 10,000 Mormon women who sent their husbands on missions in the 19th century. During the first 30 years of her marriage, her husband filled four missions, and he was gone more than a total of seven years. Her experiences are detailed in a series of letters. There is uh, still extant one letter from 1872, when her husband was gone in Scandinavia. There are 92 letters written between 1883 and 1885, and then he was again in Scandinavia. And then uh, there are 11 letters between 1893 and 1894. And that time he was in England serving as European mission president. The value of these letters, however, uh, transcends family history. They provide a lens through which to examine the impact of Mormon missionization on wives and children. Missions interrupted relationships, disrupted normative gender roles, created economic burdens, required extended family and community support, engendered uneven religiosity within a family, and required significant sacrifices on many fronts. The demands were so great, in fact, that Saini refers to herself on several occasions as a missionary wife and to her responsibilities as a mission, as if she has her own distinctive calling in partnership with her husband. Although she is quick to point out that she has all the work while he has all the honor. Her letters are fabulous because, really, because of her unflinching candor. She tells everything like it is, and she would refer to it as her saucy tongue. The letters are filled with town gossip. The, uh, at the time these letters were written, they lived in Ephraim, Utah, in Sam Pete County. And so she paints this unique portrait of this town, daily life in town and the people who inhabit it. That's um, filled with great characters. My, my plan today is to share with you a series of those stories that illuminate the life of a missionary wife, focusing on the letters that were written between uh, 1883 and 1885. So, Sani was left at home with five rambunctious boys, ranging from the oldest, Tony, who was 12, to Henry, uh, Ray, Toot and Atha, the youngest, who was just 19 months. Halfway through Anton's uh, mission, 
Uh, she describes the happenings that week. Arthur fell on a pitchfork, pitchfork running a tine into his head just above the eye, and Tony dislocated his finger. It is, Antone, she bemoaned, just enough to keep one on the fret and stew all the time. With five boys in the house, including a toddler, there was never a dull moment. Arthur, the youngest, was particularly mischievous. Shortly after Antone left, Saini took Arthur, who was still nursing, to Sunday worship services at the tabernacle. He kept talking and singing so loud that everybody around there could not help but notice him, she recounted to her husband. And to finish off with, he called as loud as he could, Saini, give me some titty now. (laughs) Take it out, Saini. She cringed, continuing. Then the folks all around laughed. I felt rather cheap. (laughs) It is no surprise that she hardly ever goes to church again during those 26 months that Antone is away. Tony, the oldest, at first was a big help. He did all kinds of things to shoulder chores and hired hired himself out to work. But then he begins to resist parental authority. He's turning into what we today would call a teenager. And Sani becomes more and more anxious. She writes, your boys need you to manage them. I hope for their sake you will not have to stay another winter. The fact that Anton was not there to correct the boys but was vexing. He could send her all the advice in the world to be more firm, but as she noted, it is easier said than done. She expected Anton to play a major role in disciplining the children, but his absence prevented that. They really do need you to manage them and counsel them, Saini wrote in July 1884. They get tired of mother's talk. They need someone firmer to lead them along. She worried they would run wild when uh, school was out of session, picking up idle habits and ignoring their chores. She wrote, I often wonder if you once think it is a care for me to be left alone to manage the children or if you are too busy. Then in a fit of pique, she exclaims, I often think you are needed just as bad at home as there. Let the sinners take care of themselves. <laughs> Management of household finances was a, uh, was a challenge. Anton had been the manager of the Ephraim United Order Co-op. Uh, store before before he left, and so he had had regular income and was able to leave money on account in the store. They also owned shares in the store, so that meant there was a dividend coming in. But they were still, um, and they were really better off than many many missionary families where there was really just a farm to sustain the family. Sani did not have to worry about farm work, uh, fortunately, but. The kinds of things she did have to worry about were the kinds of things she'd never done before. Within weeks, she's writing Anton, bemoaning the fact that the money goes so fast. It is payout for every little thing she wrote and no way of making a cent. Later on, her letters become even more uh, anxious as she writes about dull times when it comes to economics. So 
on this mission, and there was a major depression in the United States in 1884 and 1885. It was, it was caused by um, a reduction in railroad expansion and then poor harvests and um, bank panic. And, uh, and so she's having a very difficult time even making, thing, making things meet. She writes, trade is very dull, money scarce, very little dividend, if any. It was never easy to send a husband off on a mission, but those who did so during times of down, economic downturns faced particular challenges. She did that twice. She, she, her husband was on a mission during two of the three major economic depressions in the United States um, in the 19th century. She writes, um, even, even when she knew he was coming home, she said, I do not see what you can do to make anything. Times are so dull that there is not much to make. Everything rested on Saini's shoulders. <clears throat> I think I'm behind a slide. I feel so helpless sometimes, she wrote. Some women can make their living, she asserted before musing. It would be a slim living I would have if I had to make it. She did a number of things to make a living. She took in boarders. She raised pigs and chickens. She occasionally sold a horse or cow. She refers in her letters to a job, and we have no clue what that job would be. It's uh, um, probably something she's doing to just earn a little money on the side. Of course, like any uh, rural family in that time, she had a large garden, which she took care of, and orchards around the house, which provided plenty of fruit and vegetables. And uh, her oldest boys could, were old enough that they could hire out to her brothers or somebody else in town, or they would help her brothers cut hay on the meadow and bring in hay for the animals. Um, but one thing that they were hampered by was that they, they didn't have a barn. And she complains about how difficult it is, particularly in the winter, in the cold, to be out taking care of the animals. And so, without consulting her husband, she bought logs and hired workmen and decided she was going to build a barn. She writes him with trepidation. She says, I hardly dare tell you I am having a little barn put up. The shed was not fit to stack hay on, and we suffered so with the cold last winter. I thought it would be best all around to have a little barn. She noted, it was not very costly and continued, I hope you will not be vexed about it, and I think I might use the means better. I am doing it for the best, and hope you will think so too. Saney's barn was 30 feet long, 20 feet wide, and 16 logs high. It held 15 loads of hay and stabled seven head of livestock. In the ensuing letter, she drops little hints week, week, uh, week by week. She describes the barn as horrid pretty, but it keeps the hay dry and the cows warm, and the boys are so glad we have got it as it makes it much easier for them this winter, and the mornings are very cold. As spring arrives, Saini, exulting in her accomplishment, chided Antone, we would have saved money if we had built one years ago. In the nine months between first mention of the barn and her teasing comment in April, her confidence in herself and her abilities grew significantly. 
She goes from timid to confident, and she crows about their good fortune. Why hadn't Anton thought about this years ago? The barn represents the dilemma dilemma of missionary wives. Missionary wives had to step into roles that they were uncomfortable with. Building a barn would have been considered the male sphere of work, as well as most of the family finances. So many things that Saini had to do in Anton's place. Now, it's not that women didn't have economic interests because they did, and there are studies that show that women brought in between typically 45 and 50 percent of a household income in the 19th century, uh, mid 19th century, particularly in rural areas. Um, but they didn't have to be in charge of everything like she has to. That fact, the fact that women did play large roles in the economic sphere is one of the things which made the 19th century Mormon missionary enterprise possible. It's because somebody was at home who could, would be able to take care of the family and support them ec- economically with some help from the community, but not totally supported by the community. So men could leave for extended periods. Although Saini complains about times being dull and bemoans the money goes so fast, not once does she indicate they don't have enough to eat. To the contrary, she notes, we do not lack for what we really need, have a good comfortable home and plenty in it to eat. Large-scale farming um, was typically male work, and so her son, oldest son, sometimes the second son, would hire out to carry on what little farming this particular family needed. And in all cases, the bishops were expected to look after the wives of missionaries in communities. Some did that much more effectively than others did. Um, And in Saini's case, the bishop was very attentive uh, to her needs. During one, uh, she writes of Bishop Anderson, during one visit he noticed there was such a mud hole in front of the gate and this afternoon his boys came with a big load of gravel and fixed it. However, sometimes she was also left to her own devices. Now I must see to getting coal and wood for winter. I do hate this being man and woman both. It does not agree with me. I don't like it, but I will have to like it or not another year. And then, in a tirade of frustration, she writes, Tomorrow it is one year since you left home. You say you are happy to be there because it is your duty to be there. Well, I suppose your duty is a pleasant one. It seems to be my duty to wait on sick children. But I can't say I'm happy to do so. But you are free from care and anxiety. Well, I am loaded down with it in one form or another, and that makes the difference. I often wonder how President Lund would feel to be home nursing sick children one week and out, and another in, and his wife in Denmark enjoying herself. (laughs) I don't believe it would agree with his religion, as well as the poses you now hold. So Saini never hints that she wants to enlarge her own sphere, but she is very aware of uh, gender 
differences, gender discrepancies uh, in status within her family and within the community. And the fact that she had all the work and worry at home constantly rankled her. The letters are also imbued with a deep sense of anxiety about the specter of plural marriage which constantly hangs over the house and the fear that her husband will bring home another wife from the mission, from his mission. Now, this is Sani. Uh, when uh, uh, she'd be about 17 or 18 here, uh, when Anton went on his first mission, she grew up in a plural household. So this is her father, Knut Peterson, and these are her. That's her mother and uh, his father's two other wives. And the second of those wives, her father had met while he was a missionary. And after he came home and she immigrated, he married her within six weeks of her arrival. So. This is not uncommon. Particularly, I looked at all the I looked at all the polygamous marriages in Ephraim, and there are a lot of missionaries there who married someone that they met on their mission. So she has real reason to be concerned about there. This very few letters go by without a jab or two at Anton over plural marriage. Sometimes, sometimes these jabs are teasing. So referring to her brother Nels, who's gone out courting, she says, "Nels has just come." I guess he's been to see his girl. I hope that will not put you in the notion. Sometimes she can be a bit melancholy. Time touches us all, and it would be nice to have a nice fat lamb instead of the dried old mutton at home. And at other times, she is biting. Some... Uh, if there is anything good in life, the man gets it, and the woman has to worry it out the best way she can and make a slave of herself and feel content. This is how I feel about it. This having a man thousands of miles away converting fine-looking girls and living on their smiles and flatteries and wondering which one he had better immigrate is not what it is cracked up to be. But you did say in one of your letters that you was not going to do that way. Well... You may or you may not, and I don't know as I care. And then again, I do care. You say in every letter that you wish you did not think so much about home. You, um, I wish you did not. I wish you could forget um, you had a home, and I wish I could draw my mind from you. I fear it nestles too much around you and not enough on the business I have to tend to. How does that sound, old man? Well, that will do of this kind, and you can take it for what it's worth. Saney's anxieties play out amidst the uh, federal crackdown on plural marriage in the 1880s. And um, she's bold and flippant and saucy in her disdain of the practice. Nevertheless, she really is resigned to the fact that one day she is going to have to live in the principle. However, Anton does not take another wife, and I believe it's because of the economic pressures when he gets home in 1885, and he doesn't have a job anymore, and he doesn't have any money, and they've spent so much money while he's on the mission that he's in economic straits, and by the time he kind of gets that righted, um, plural marriages are really just 
just way on the wane, and it's becoming very dangerous for men to enter plural marriage, and so he never does, although he's clearly a believer in the principle. You, uh, you sense in that a bit of or these few passages that I've read, a bit of the loneliness um, that kind of infuses the letters. She is desperately lonely without Anton at home. His absence is felt constantly. She notes she hears the rain hitting on the window, and it makes her think of him. And uh, every, um, they call everybody to dinner, and the youngest says, Where's Papa? And uh, they, uh, they think of Anton. The nighttime elicited these emotions in full force. It is so lonesome such nights, Saini wrote, to sit and listen to the rain and think of you so many miles away. She expressed her love in a series of pet names sprinkled through the letters, my old man, my bummer, my brown-eyed lad, or my darling Anton. At times, the letters pulsate with longing, reminds him of reading her to sleep, talking late into the night. The letters often conclude with a series of plaintive phrases sprinkled all over, upside down, backwards, uh, every way you can imagine, all over every page of the letter. So this is from one letter, March 1884. To my darling in a foreign land, how I miss him and long to see him once again. I hope you will not get too fat. (laughs) Does your heart beat true to me, my love, now you are gone so far away? Goodbye, dearest, for this time. I would like to send a kiss. I will make up when you come. That is, if you will let me. And my love to A.H. Lund, the translator. The pervasive loneliness of of missionary wife was no more acute than when the children were sick. The first night Anton was gone in 1883, Henry began to groan and was so sick he puked and had a hot fever, she reported. Resigned to her lot, she found that focusing on her sick child kind of helped to pass away the time. Nevertheless, she admitted that the nights are very lonesome no Anton to call when the children are sick. Danger uh, posed by illness was ever present in the 19th century. 80% of Saini's letters talk about illness or death of either their own family or somebody in their close circle of neighbors and friends in Ephraim. It is, it is a constant and just as an aside, I'll tell you, when I've spoken over the years to groups, invariably somebody comes up and says, oh, I bet you'd love to live back then. And the thought goes through my mind is, you've got to be kidding me. But, um, but I changed that. I've moderated that now. And so what I say is, well, I'd go back for one day if I had a pocket full of antibiotics. And uh, that is the reality. So today with modern medicine, we just don't understand... Um, the pervasiveness of serious illness that just hung over everybody all of the time. Her greatest worry was her um, five boys and childhood illnesses. Measles, um, mumps, smallpox, uh, diphtheria was the most dreaded of all of them. 
Um, those could sweep through a community and uh, take children, uh, just one after another. Lingering under the surface of her worries is this thought. I just thought what an awful thing if one of the children should die and you gone. She couldn't imagine a greater sorrow or a greater failure. One of Anton's own missionaries had to be sent home early because all four of his living children died in a diphtheria epidemic. So that fear hangs over her constantly, and they had already lost a child to whooping cough. They had lost a little girl uh, years earlier. Sani also worried about Anton. She worries about illness. She's constantly checking, are you eating right? And uh, uh, I hope you don't have a cold, or uh, I hope you're not getting colds. Um, But she also worried about the potential of violence against uh, Mormon missionaries. So while Anton is out, two missionaries in Tennessee were shot and killed. And three days, days later, she writes him, I suppose before you get this, you will have heard of the missionaries getting shot in Tennessee. She then reveals her anxiety, how hard it looks to have them killed away from home and either never see them again or have them sent dead. I do hope, Anton, she continued, you will not come home, that you will come home all right as that, it seems, will be one of the happiest days of my life when we will meet again. That meeting presumed that Saini would also be there to greet him. Saini had fragile health from childhood. So remember, she is only uh, 30 years old when he leaves on this particular mission. These letters document the extraction of her upper teeth rheumatism, pain in the breast and shoulders, liver complaint, indigestion, and erysipelas, which was a serious infection. So she herself is plagued by all of these things. And even more prevalent through these letters is anxiety and what today, what she called the blues, but which we would call depression. And I'm no expert on this. I have talked to experts about this and shown them the letters, and they say she suffers from clinical depression and anxiety. Um, She writes, the blues are cheap. She notes on their 14th wedding anniversary, I afford them most of the time. She worries about her change in appearance. I have got poor every day since you went and look as old as mother. Everybody says how I have changed in the last year. I fear you will not want to own me, for you thought I looked bad enough before you left. (laughs) In closing, she wonders, do you love me still if I do look old? In the end, Saini states, it is not the easiest thing in the world to be a missionary wife. There were many pressures and anxieties just navigating everyday life. She has to take on these, all these responsibilities which she had never had to shoulder before. Um, She doesn't recognize, I don't think, um, she recognizes how much she is growing and how much more confident she is becoming in the letters. Um, She writes... um, 
there was just a constant, constant stream of apprehension that she faced in her life. Later in life, we have some letters she wrote much later too, and she presents a very different persona when she's 50 and 60 years old than she does when she's 30 and, and in this huge time of stress that she's facing. At times, Saini must have really felt that they were crazy. Piecing together the stories from these letters presents a picture of a witty, long-suffering, strong woman determined to fulfill what she sometimes referred to as her calling as a missionary wife. Her experiences can expand our understanding of a segment of the population that sometimes can get lost between the cracks. Fortunately, Saini employs her saucy tongue to tell it like it was. She would no doubt conclude this presentation with, well, how do you like that? Thank you. Any questions? We have some, maybe a couple coming in. Brownie oh. and your $50 gift certificate oh, for the thank bookstore. Thank you. Thank you. So, it's hard to have questions on personal stories. Yeah. Ah, we have one right here. And then we'll... So the question is, where could I read more about Saini? Well, I hope in another couple of years our book will be out. Uh, she is, uh, like lots of 19th century Mormon women, somewhat elusive, so she never wrote an autobiography. She did not keep a journal. She demanded constantly that Antone burn her letters, uh, which was kind of a, a standard approach for women in the 19th century. Women were expected to disavow their writings. Uh, you weren't expected to be able to write well. And um, so, and she is just totally embarrassed by her punctuation, spelling, and uh, a little bit by her grammar, I think. Uh, she didn't have very much schooling. She had very little schooling. But the reality is when you look at the letters, they're actually very well written. She can construct a story. She uses dialect. She uses all kinds of, uh, of uh, frameworks that help you... Uh, really understand who she is and what she's trying to talk about. She tries to paint pictures with words. So she's actually what I think is a really good writer. But her story is elusive. So without these letters, uh, and I actually think she burned most of the letters from the 1890s um, because all, they're all gone except for when she wrote a note on the letter somebody else sent her husband. Um, so I, I think she destroyed those letters because she was embarrassed by them. Um, but lots of trying to find women's stories can be very difficult because they're like that. If they didn't write an autobiography, you have to read through the lines, read through their husband's journal sometimes, or read through uh, letters. And often, like uh, minutes of Relief Society meetings will often give you a little hint of what these women are doing and talking about. Sometimes they show up in the newspaper. So it's often a hunt to try and find these, uh, fi uncover the lives of 19th century women. Okay. 
All right. Why do you pronounce Anton H. Lund's name Anton? My grandmother, who knew many general authorities, pronounced it Anthon. Um, well, my last name is Lund, and I'm married uh, to a Lund. That's how I came across these letters. Was, uh, I, somebody showed them to me 35 years ago, um, and I knew they were... I knew they were just fabulous letters. They were donated to the church history, well, the mo most bulk of them were donated to the church history library about seven years ago. Um, the family pronounces it Anton, which I believe is close to the Scandinavian pronunciation, although Scandinavians tell me it's more, like, more often pronounced Anton, but the family pronounces it Anton. Um, I would love to hear Anton's responses to her letters. Are they compiled together? So no, we don't have uh, the responses to uh, the letters. We don't know what has happened to those. Uh, okay, same question. And somebody asked me that, okay. Did Anton bring home a plural wife? And then did her boys grow to manhood? So Anton brought home or did not bring home a plural wife. He sent home one of his cousins, and she was only 14 years old, and I'm sure that was not an intended plural wife. Um, there is evidence in the letters, because she gets really miffed at him, that he wrote to somebody that he had his eye on someone in the mission. So, uh, but he did not follow through with that. Of those boys I showed you, there were uh, uh, five of them there. Um, one of those two died of diphtheria in 1890. That is one of, and that's actually recorded in Anton's diary, day by day account as they watch their son slip away. It's one of the most heart wrenching things I've ever read in my entire life. Um, so I did mention that there's no. Somebody's asking about research into his letters back. We just don't know what those letters are. But we do have Anton's diaries, which he often mentions what Saini wrote. Sometimes reading between the lines, you can tell, she'll say, well, you scolded me in the last letter. And so he can respond sharply when he, th she, he thinks she's being way too critical of him. Um, here's a question, how did I come across Saini? And that's because I married into the family. I recommend that for all historians is to marry into a family that has lots of interesting characters and lots of documents. I come from a family where there is not one letter from anybody, anywhere. Um, and let's see if we got all these answered. Is the Lund home still standing? The Lund home in Ephraim is not still standing. The co-op store is standing. It was restored a number of years ago by a small group that got together and raised funds. Uh, but the Lund home, which would be just kitty corner from that, if you happen to know Ephraim, Kitty Corner across Main Street uh, was, uh, it was torn down in the 1960s and a Texaco gas station was built on the location. Uh, so the question is, how did the circumstance of missionary wives impact property law in Utah? That, that's a really good question. Um, I, you know, Saini didn't try and sell any property during the, this time period, so I don't know how that would have impacted. There was long a tradition in the, it was imported from Britain and into the American legal system that when a 
husband was absent, the, the wife could act in his stead without any kind of special paperwork or anything. It's called deputy wives. Very common in the 17th and 18th centuries. I don't know how much that transported into the 19th century. Um, but, um, so I'm, I'm just not aware of that. That's a really great question. Somebody ought to look at that someday. Thank you so okay, much. thank you.